Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, a nuanced look at Connecticut's largest city, the Park City, better known as Bridgeport. Earlier this week, Where We Live recorded a show inside Beehive Bridgeport, a co-working space located in the city's downtown. There I spoke with local residents and leaders to learn more about Bridgeport's history and confront perceptions of its present-day culture and politics. This hour, we're listening back to an edited version of that conversation, which began with Bridgeport musician John Torres performing this song to Georgia and back. Eating fozy apples up in Washington Gonna hide a little something The border patrol Maybe in my shoe Maybe I don't know But I Coming up, we'll hear more from Torres. But first, I wanted to check in with two community leaders, State Senator Marilyn Moore, who represents Bridgeport, Monroe, and Trumbull, and Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. I want to start with you, Maisa. For our listeners who may not know about your organization, tell us about it. Well, the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center actually owns the oldest houses built by African Americans in the state. They're on the south end of Bridgeport, near the Long Island Sound. And what was really amazing about these houses, they're not just special because they're old, they're special because they're the last surviving buildings of a free community of people of color that predates the actual founding, the chartering of Bridgeport itself as a city. Now, what's really interesting about this place is that free people of color, Native Americans and African Americans, established this place in 1822. And the Freeman houses themselves, owned by two sisters, were built in 1848. It was a seafaring community. And in 1848, Connecticut still has slavery. And we know that the country had it until 1865. So for the audacity of these people, um, born and raised in the U.S., and then who later invited people to come and invest, other folks from the Caribbean, from the Cape Verde Islands, from Canada, and from South America, they invited them to come to Bridgeport and invest in this place. And if you got here and you were a person of color, if you were a freedom seeker from the South, if you were a sailor who just fought in the China Sea, there was a place for you in this community. You could use your God-given talents and keep your own family together and prosper right here in what would soon become Bridgeport. That's really fascinating history that a lot of people don't know about. Why is that? Well, most people don't know about it. Um, <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that the reason we don't know about it has a lot to do with our own narrative about what Connecticut must be, or what Bridgeport must be. All of us have in our head a feeling that we know the history of this place, especially if we live here. But if we really take a look, if we try to focus on the vision, what the history of this place is, do we really, really know? So the telling of the history of Bridgeport which doesn't actually get told a lot because it's a working class city. It's a city made up of immigrants and people who manned um, and, and womaned the factories. It's a, it's a community that was built on Native American lands. We don't tell that story until actually we have patriarchs, um, actually wasp patriarchs. So 
If we go back a little further and start the telling of this city from the telling of the land and the water and the resources and then see people as they come, then we'll hear these stories. We'll hear the stories of the Pagussets. We'll hear the stories of Mary and Eliza Freeman in Little Liberia. And we'll hear the stories of the immigrants who came later and the way we all related. Little Liberia being this community of free blacks? Right, the, this community, um, it was originally referred to as Ethiop. And then they actually referred to themselves as Liberia. Not Little Liberia, we look back at them with the knowledge that there's a nation called Liberia and in the 20th century started calling them Little Liberia. But they called themselves Liberia. And we kind of wondered why, and we explored a lot of the ties between the people there and the nation itself. And we were wondering you know, why we didn't see a lot, of, a lot of exchange, although we saw the same kinds of spirits and ideas and ethics growing up. And we actually had to stop and say, well, what does Liberia mean? Well, Liberia means free land. And we have all these families there that also call themselves freemen. So it's really interesting that they were staking their claim on that ground and on their vision for what that community would be by calling it, in a sense, in, in free land. It was going to be a place where people could come and be free, wherever you came from. So we had folks living there who came from Jamaica. We had the nephew of the Emperor of Haiti who settled and invested there. We had people who came and visited, there was a, a hotel for wealthy blacks from New York. It was a seaside resort, and it was mentioned in a letter to Frederick Douglass. So I actually have the letter here, and if anybody really prods me, I'll be happy to read some of it. How about we read a little now? Oh, okay. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling that this is actually the first time that this letter has been read on the air. It was written on September 1st in 1854 by a man named, who called himself Ethiop, and he was the Brooklyn correspondent for Frederick Douglass's newspaper. And he says, my dear Douglass, it has been long since I have written to you. I have not been in the attitude for it, nor am I now, and yet further delay seems unnecessary. To begin then, somewhere about the middle of August, I turned my face from the toil and care and sought for refuge and recreation at some point distant from Gotham. He was from Brooklyn. I found all I required in the flourishing little town of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Others may talk of Newport and Saratoga, of Cape May and, and Nant, or of Sulphur Springs and Macedonk. These are for white aristocrats and black servants. But the Duncan House, Bridgeport, built, owned, and kept by A. Duncan, the place where I rested from my labors is yet to eclipse all these. This new and excellent hotel is located in the best spot in the town, overlooking the bay, the city, and the adjacent country. No other hotel in Bridgeport is thus so finely situated. And as a place of resort and unalloyed pleasure, it offers advantages to the people of color beyond any yet extant. Bridgeport gathers up in her grasp 
various railroads and other communications, and thus permits easy access to her bosom. Hence, gentlemen may bring their families up here and return to their business, and if residing no further than the vicinity of Gotham, may glide to and fro without difficulty, and enjoy at the same time a few hours of unrivaled atmosphere, a sea bath, and the society of their families and friends. I found many of the best families of New York in the suburbs staying, boarding, living there in this very elegance of enjoyment. There is another and weighty reason why Bridgeport should be especially a place of resort for the people of color. Besides its equidistant position from big cities, notwithstanding its healthy location and accessible position, Bridgeport is not a fashionable place of resort for the whites. Hence, it should be for blacks. Anyway, the letter goes on and on. It describes a settlement of beautiful homes that blacks own and how they have gardens and they're watering them and the pride that they take. So this was the Bridgeport of Mary and Eliza Freeman. This was the Bridgeport of what was Little Liberia. So early in the 1800s, you had two Bridgeports growing up side by side, a white Bridgeport and a black Bridgeport. And after a while, the white Bridgeport and the black Bridgeport started meeting geographically. And we're the result of that. Maisa Tisdale, again, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. When we're listening to that letter, Bridgeport was a happening place, a it welcoming was. place. What happened? What, we're not welcoming? <laughs> Look at all that pizza Definitely over there. Welcoming. <laughs> Definitely welcoming, but if we're talking about perceptions of this city, people that live in other parts of Connecticut, the perception is not all positive. Well, I think perceptions, I look at perceptions historically. And the perceptions of Bridgeport as a place that is a dismal place is actually pretty short. Bridgeport is a new city. It wasn't created as a colonial city as Hartford was. Um, this was a city that was created for industry and for innovation. So Fairfield and Stratford, um, this is where you had the, the landed elite living. And they had been prospering um, from a really burgeoning kind of trade. Mm, and Bridgeport actually started putting up a lot of docks and piers, and there was a lot of merchant traffic during this particular kind of trade. Anybody want to venture guess what it was? It was a slave trade. So when time came as the slave trade was, um, was clearly not going to prosper the state anymore, because this was a, a state that relied very heavily on the profits of the slave trade. As, a, as the Civil War came about, it became very clear that the economy of this area had to find another footing. And so you had really creative thinkers like P.T. Barnum and others, and they thought, well, Let's make Bridgeport sort of the Silicon Valley um, of its time. We'll attract investment and we'll invest in the creativity of industry. So Bridgeport comes to rise much later in the 1800s um, and after the Civil War as this big industrial city. And it, it peaked early as an industrial city. And so it also declined early as an industrial city. The industry that um, made Bridgeport great was also transitioned for wartime, for World War I, for World War II, and it built a lot of its industry on um, 
the needs of war, and then there weren't wars. But when I was a kid, and I'm going to date myself, but when I was a kid um, in the 1960s and in the 70s, to come downtown in Bridgeport, you had to put on a hat and white gloves. You didn't come down here unless you were dressed like you were going to church. The place was busy. Round the clock, the buses ran. And before that, round the clock, the trolleys ran. So you see Bridgeport decline as industry declines um, only because it, it, it peaked really early. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We're live at Beehive Bridgeport. We were just listening to Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Uh, to your left is State Senator Marilyn Moore. Again, welcome uh, to this evening's show. And tell us, you're in your second term? I'm in, my, this is the third year yeah. of my second term. My first term uh, as a state senator. I've been a legislative aide for Senator Gomes in 2008. Uh, for about two years, and that's where I realized I could do that job. And uh, I'm going to go back as the senator. I'm not going back as the legislative aide. So in 2015 was my first tour. We sense a lot of pride in this city. Tell us why you wanted to represent Bridgeport at the Capitol. I love Bridgeport because I know what it was like when I was a child. I know what the school system was like. I'm a product of public schools. I know what the school system is like. I know what it's like to have a neighborhood. I'm, if you want to date, I remember when the factories were here, manufacturing, and everybody had a job, when there was neighborhoods, when if I did something wrong and I walked 50 feet, my mother knew about it, so I'd better not do it. it was, someone was going to tell her, somebody was going to call me on it. It's a completely different world now. But I still love Bridgeport. I'm watching it, it uh, sort of come back. You know, my, my heartbreak is Main Street that I live just up the street off of Washington Avenue, less than half a mile from here. But I walked downtown Bridgeport every single Thursday night on, on the Thursday night stroll, and I remember all the stores. What breaks my heart is that we had such great theaters like the Lowe's Polis that still sits there vacant, and the properties have sat vacant for 50 years. For 50 years, I've watched nothing happen downtown Bridgeport. But I always have hope that something is going to change and that just like the beehive. For me, this is like the new growth that needs to come out of, out of Bridgeport. People who want to come here and live and not just come here to work and leave at the end of the day, but people who are investing in Bridgeport. Along with the people like me who have invested my total life here, I think it's that coming together that is talking about. We have to do it as a community. And I think we have to take responsibility for everything that goes on in Bridgeport because we are the voters. We live here. It's up to us to speak up or be engaged in what goes on. Let's talk about civic participation, uh, the voters that you mentioned. How do you get more people involved in the democratic process that are coming to the elections, that are voting in leaders in Bridgeport? I think it's about education. I know I take it personally that I'm responsible for making people aware of what I'm doing. I also try to make it people aware of what I'm stopping from happen, happening in the legislature when it comes to bills that would harm low-income people, working-class people. People need to have a responsibility. It goes both ways. So I, I try to engage people by being involved in something like this, coming out into the community, talking to people about what I'm doing, and saying, if you want me to go back, you have to support me. You don't want me to come back, and you want to send somebody up who doesn't care about you, but just don't vote, because that's what you'll get. 
people have to be invested in the community and take responsibility for the people that we elect, including me. Uh, I learned this from Senator Gomes, who uh, has been in politics for over 40 years, who said, to, said many times to people in the community, if I'm not doing the job, don't elect me. But what we seem to do here in Bridgeport is continue to elect people who aren't doing the job, and we just bring them back and put them back in, and we don't hold them accountable. And I think that's where everything stalls, that we don't hold people accountable. But the other part of that is, when we elect people, we don't challenge them, and we don't say, this is what I want, and come back and evaluate later that this is what I said I was gonna do, did I do it, and if I didn't do it, how do you hold me accountable for what I, you never asked me for? This was Bridgeport Day at the Capitol. What are some of the key things that you wanna see happen in the General Assembly that can benefit this city? So it was Bridgeport Day and we had over 40 uh, vendors, both public and private partnerships and community organizations and community people came up and it was a fabulous day. And I think it's important for, uh, you mentioned earlier about the perception of Bridgeport. If you were there today, you would never think that we were not a welcoming city or we were not booming and people weren't working together because that's all you saw in the room. The people who really are, are on the ground doing the work, so many nonprofits in, in Bridgeport who are doing the work have come up. I want people to know and I want people to make their voices be heard. You have to call your legislator. You have to be on top of what they're doing. You have to call them on it. And when they come out to the community and do listening sessions or community forums, you must attend. And you have, you, you have a, a, uh, eight representatives from Bridgeport, right? I would ask people in the audience, how many times have you actually reached out to talk to them about a concern that was not a municipal concern? Because people will call me about this parking. I have nothing to do with the, the streets that are and the parking meters. But call me about legislation that's gonna impact your taxes, the schools, the budget, uh, any of the programs, those are the things you need to contact. But I would guess that we don't get those calls. I know firsthand that when I was Senator Gomes' aide, the other aides that I sat around, they were on the phones all the time and I was like, what are they doing? What? I mean, are they having on personal calls? Because nobody from Bridgeport actually called to talk to Senator Gomes to talk to me. So that tells me that they don't understand that it's a give and take, that they need to call their legislators and they need to, to speak to them when they have concerns about what's going on. That state Senator Marilyn Moore, she represents Bridgeport, Monroe, and Trumbull. Tuesday night, she joined Where We Live alongside Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community, for a discussion at Beehive Bridgeport, a co-working space in the city's downtown. When we come back, we'll hear more from them and some Bridgeport residents who've invested in the city's neighborhoods, including downtown. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where We Live hit the road earlier this week recording a show at Beehive Bridgeport, a co-working space on Fairfield Avenue in the city. Before the break, we explored the city's history and political climate with Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community, and State Senator Marilyn Moore, who represents the city, Monroe, and Trumbull. Coming up, we'll hear more from them. But first, here's one of the city's newer residents, Marcella Kovac. She's co-founder of Beehive Bridgeport and also chair of the marketing committee of Bridgeport Generation Now, a social action network. Marcella, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. This is a beautiful space. Tell us what brought you here to Bridgeport. I actually discovered Bridgeport because I was... Um, 
moving out of my hometown of Danbury, Connecticut, and um, starting a new life. And I had a job in South Norwalk. And so I was looking for something that was sort of close to that and um, somewhere that felt that it had a good community spirit and also that was affordable to um, me living on my own. And Bridgeport just had that right formula. You're obviously ambitious, you're an entrepreneur, you're young, you have a lot of passion. As I mentioned, you're part of Bridgeport Generation Now. What do you want to see change with city leadership to respond to people like you, to bring in more young people to move into the city? I think that the city leadership needs to listen to its youth and to the new people that are moving in more, give them a chance to move into those leadership positions now. I think, um, you know, the old, quote-unquote, old guard has, um, you know, had their, their day, and now I think it's time for them to step aside and let the people who really do care step into those leadership roles. I'll turn back to our other panelists. Is this a city that's welcoming to families? Well, I want to speak to the age because the medium age here is 36 years old. Uh, and considering my age, I think that's pretty young. Uh, it is welcoming. And you're seeing, you, I think since the census says since 2010, we've seen an increase in the city and its young people. And I think that's why the number is driving down. I, I, I think it's very important to have young people come in and bring new blood and new ideas. And I really do welcome places like the Beehive and people that they draw in. But I want to just caution that people who have invested, such as myself, over 60 years into the community, there has to be a blend and there has to be a meeting of how do we work together? How do some of these people mentor and, and other people to come in? And then move out of the way. Don't mentor and hold on but mentor and move out of the way. And then also be there as a support after you've been mentored. You don't want to mentor somebody and then they're out there and you leave them. And I think more of that has to take place. I'm really on board with seeing new leadership come into the city, younger people come in that are going to take the city to the, to the next level because I think that's one of the things that, that's lacking. That, that in Bridgeport, the politics are many of the jobs that the people get, we recycle these people over and over, and I don't consider it to be recycled because this is my first term, second term as a senator. I've never had public office before. So I see myself as a newbie bringing in new ideas, trying to break down some of the, the chains and the baggage that has held us down and not allowed us to move forward. But I think there has to be more new leadership and it can't always be cronyism that takes place. And it can't always be bringing in everybody's family into a job. You have to bring the best and the brightest if you want the city to prosper, you have to really do like resumes, interviews, give everybody a shot at a job, and make sure that you're bringing people together like they did here with all the different skills that you need to take the city forward. In my whole life living here, I've never seen the plan for 20 years out in the city. And if you, ever, if you never see a plan, and you never see any, or you never see the people who are in leadership pushing a plan, or, or presenting a plan, or marketing a plan, you know that you're gonna stand still. And when you see things happening around you and like some of the growth we're seeing on Main Street, you wonder what is it? And is it a part of plan? And if there's a plan, why not share it with the community so we can be a part of it? A strategic plan. Yes. Maisa, would you like to, to weigh in? 
Yeah, um, the city has lots of plans. They have for a long time. There are drawers and drawers and drawers <laughs> full of plans. And guess what? A lot of them are really, really good. Um, so that begs the question. Like you said, what, what is the plan? Which of the plans are we on right now? All it takes to change government is a walk to the polls. Mm. All right, so the question is, why don't people walk to a school? All it takes is a walk to a school to change government. So that's the question we ought to be asking. Why, why doesn't that happen? Do we lack consensus as a community about what our vision is for the future? Do we lack cohesion as a community? What is it that prevents people from walking to the polls? I was on a panel with John Saltis from the library, and he mentioned that when my uncle ran for mayor, 95% of the people turned out to vote. How many people turned out to vote in the last election? 18, 18 people or 18%? <laughs> Okay, so 18%. That's a big difference. So is it that we don't have a vision? Is it that we don't see ourselves as one community? I mean, that's a conversation that we need to have. Because literally, all it takes to change government is a walk to the school near you. Marcella, why do you think people aren't walking to the school, as Maisa says, and casting their ballot? Um, I think it's a combination of just, you know, uh, not knowing um, where they stand on certain issues and, and kind of being told um, things that aren't true that are, it, it kind of goes back to Senator Moore's point of the accountability isn't being, it's not in place right now currently and politicians will make promises that they don't really have to follow up on right now. So I think part of it is, um, people just not being fully aware of the particular issues or where they stand versus where um, the politicians stand and also just mis misinformation being passed along as well, which is where the accountability comes back into play. And that's where Bridgeport Generation now um, strives to you know, have a very transparent community and also strives to hold all of our politicians accountable. You mentioned Bridgeport Generation now. John Torres, who's been playing for us uh, this evening, is the vice president of the Social Action Network. John, you're, you're born in Bridgeport. Tell us about your roots here. Uh, yeah, I'm, I guess, second generation. My father um, was actually born in Cuba, and shortly after being born was actually uh, you know, immigrated here to Bridgeport. And um, yeah, so I, I grew up here. And I went to uh, parochial school in, in the Black Rock section. I grew up on the West End and then Black Rock. And uh, I've been here ever since, aside from four years of college. Mm -hmm. And now I've bought a home on the uh, West End, the, the Stratfield Historic District. So you're vested in the city, like oh, everyone yeah. else uh, in this room, it appears. But <clears throat> let's talk about accountability, transparency in the current administration. What do you want to see change? There you go. Transparency and accountability are two huge words that are often just sort of buzzed by you because they are sort of buzzy. But those are two things that are absolutely lacking here. Um, there is no access to the executive branch. There is no access to even the legislative branch. We don't see anything. If you go to a city council meeting, they literally cannot speak to you. You can speak to them and you can raise a concern and they have to say thank you and that's all they're allowed to say. 
Um, everything is done behind closed doors. Everything is a, you know, it's a one hand washes the other kind of deal. So mm-hmm. being able to see what is happening, having our books on, uh, like uh, LA has a, has a system of uh, checks and balances that's totally transparent. Everything is online. Every check that the city writes, every dollar that comes in, uh, is in a database, and a person like John Marshall Lee, who's probably here, if not, he's a sort of a watchdog. Or, <clears throat> uh, he is a watchdog of like the the, uh, the city council and the city itself, the budget. And a guy like him, with that kind of knowledge, would just thrive. And our city, we would see what was happening if we could just peel back that veil that has been placed there intentionally for um, you know the, the benefit of of those in power to uh, allow them a little bit of breathing room so that they're not being watched in, in whatever shady uh, parking meter deals they're doing. Uh, <laughs> we need to get rid of that. It's incredibly important. And then with that comes the accountability. You can actually hold them accountable because you can see. You can see what's happening. So meanwhile, you have a passion. That's why you're living in this city. You're a musician. When we think about how communities grow and foster each other, the arts is a big part of that. Tell us about what's happening in Bridgeport beyond the politics, which we know needs a lot of work, that makes people passionate about the city. You have a lot of people here like me and uh, Senator Moore, who just spoke about how passionate she is about Bridgeport. You're going to find, you know, thousands of people like that here. For some reason, we're just like, no matter how many times our head gets railed into the wall, we're just like, we're here. We're not leaving. And, and, and I think that... I'm definitely one of those people. I, I don't know what it is about it. Something in the water, something in the just being here. You just start to get this like sense of like urgency and, and, and feeling of like hope no matter what happens, no matter who wins an election, you just have this hope that we'll get better. But yeah, the arts in, in particular, I think, are definitely something that has been going on in Bridgeport for a long time. Since I was, a, you know, when I, when I first got involved in, in music, there was a great place called the Acoustic Cafe in Black Rock, which is still there. It's, it's sort of expanded now, but at the time it was sort of a listening room, and I would go there and I saw everyone. I mean, I saw Martin Sexton and Annie DeFranco, and I, you know, whoever was touring at the time that was sort of on that level was coming to Bridgeport. And um, so I sort of got introduced to a lot of musicians through that scene, uh, and that specifically was down in Black Rock. And then here downtown, you've got the Reeds Art Center, which is uh, right over there is an old department store that's been transformed into essentially um, it's subsidized housing for artists, musicians, primarily. So you have a ton of people that are sort of uh, concentrated in the downtown area, musicians, artists, uh, graphic artists, uh, you know, uh, poets, and every kind of music, um, artist you can think of. Um, so the downtown has a really good scene. You mentioned housing, John. Marcella, Senator Moore, is Bridgeport affordable? We just did a show on millennials and nationwide, one-third of young adults are still living with their parents, and a lot of that has to do with the economy, not being able to find a job, being burdened down by student debt. Is it affordable for young people to come here? Well, I never thought that I would buy a home, and luckily I was able to, and where I chose to do that was here in Bridgeport. So I do, I do think that... We have the affordability. I think because the taxes are a little bit high, a little bit, that's an <laughs> understatement. What's um, the mill rate, 40, 54%? 54% yeah, mill rate? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, I think that is definitely what has put a little bit of a, a block up for some people who are interested in buying is the homes are affordable, but the taxes are not. So you have sort of that double-edged sword there. The mayor just released his budget proposal, a flat budget and no increases in taxes. 
good news. That's only because he just increased the taxes. We hope there's not another one coming on top of that. (laughs) Uh, And that was a huge increase. But this budget proposal relies a lot on what state lawmakers and the governor are going to give Bridgeport, right? And uh, it's not on solid ground. Uh, You don't know where some of that money is going to come from. You don't know that we're going to be able to tax those hospitals. Uh, so every, everything is a work in process right now, and I've, uh, the joke is we'll be up there in September. I said not me because I'm planning a vacation in September. But we, we are going to get through with that budget sometime in June, and it's not until that budget is done that we're really going to know what's going on. But I want to just say, it, when you talk about affordability, it, everything is relative. Mm-hmm. What's affordable to this young lady may not be affordable to people living here. It's an average of $1,200 a month to have a one-bedroom apartment here. There's some people who don't make $1,200 a month that have families. We are very low income. We have a lot of poverty in the city of Bridgeport. People are struggling to stay here. And, and for someone to buy a house, you already have to be very solid in your finances to be able to come here and, and buy, purchase property. But I think this is a beautiful city. And I, I, I go back to this word hope that I really, that is what. You know, I bang my head all the time, and I get knocked down, but I still have that hope because I know what the possibilities are here. I've seen where Bridgeport has been. I know we can get back there. We just can't get there or go forward with the same roadmap that we have used in the past. It is going to take real strong change. It has to take people willing to stand up, fight, suffer a little bit, lose a little bit, and make huge gains. But it's going to have to take. It's going to take us collectively to do that together, so nobody gets left behind. So the low-income people who are, are dependent on SNAP benefits, care for kids, Medicare, Medicaid, all those programs, we have to make sure we're taking care of them. We have a responsibility as human beings to take care of our elderly and our children and the mentally ill. So we want to make sure that there's a place for them in our community together, and that is going to take sacrifices from those who have and those who only have a little bit to give. You've got a lot of passion. You're at the Capitol for a reason. Why not run for mayor? Why not? Why not? Let me, let me just say, so um, I know there's a person in here who lit the fire on Marilyn Morris running for mayor. But let me just say this. I, John, you know I feel you. I really do understand what you're saying. Uh, and part of the problem for Bridgeport is, um, so our mayor had a fundraiser at uh, Mario Testa's uh, last week, and he raised $200,000. And you wouldn't believe the people who were in there giving him $500,000. That's why we can't move beyond. When you give people that kind of money, you're beholding. So as an elected official for for Um, in the state. I want to tell you, the unions helped me be where I am today and get to to Hartford. And I am beholding to them, but those are people. Those are people behind those jobs in the SEIU and the people who worked for free. Nobody can run for mayor in Bridgeport that isn't beholding to somebody else that when they get in the office they have to pay them back if they have to raise a million dollars. Because you have to pay all those people back at somehow. And when you're not paying them back with, with things that you're doing in the city, you're paying them back with jobs, contracts. It would take an army of individuals who would be willing to work, and I mean work, for no pay to run a campaign in Bridgeport and be successful. 
And I have said to people, unless there's 150 people who sign up, who say, I'm going to work for you, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to talk about the rain, the snow, the dog, or any of that, we will always have people who are beholding to people who have been paid to run. So why not? When those things change, I'll talk to people about it. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. State Senator Marilyn Moore represents Bridgeport, Monroe, and Trumbull. We spoke earlier this week during a show we recorded at Beehive Bridgeport in the city's downtown. Also on the panel was Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Marcella Kovac, co-founder of Beehive Bridgeport and member of social action network Bridgeport Generation Now. John Torres is vice president of that group and a musician. Rob Schulten also joined us. He's a distiller at Asylum Distillery in the city. Now, we invited Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam to the show, but he was unable to attend. When we come back, we'll hear more from the panelists and take some questions and comments from the audience. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're broadcasting portions of a Where We Live show we taped at Beehive Bridgeport. It's a co-working space in the city's downtown. Joining me for the conversation were some of the city's young residents and leaders like Maisa Tisdale and State Senator Marilyn Moore. After a lengthy discussion with our panelists, we wanted to turn to the audience to find out what other issues and questions were on their minds, starting with City Councilwoman Jeanette Heron. Good evening, panelists. You've done a great job. I appreciate that. For the young people in the audience, if you don't get involved, you have no voice. And they have to understand that if you have no voice, you can't get involved. It took me 10 years to become a city councilwoman. I'm in my first term. I'm only there 15 months, and I'm still learning. I had a hard time getting involved with that because it's the good old boy syndrome. They don't know you. You have to constantly do things to get involved there. I'm here now, I'm trying the best I can, I'm learning. Um, I continue to do that, I continue to push back a little bit, I'm hearing what everybody is saying here. I've taken notes to go back. Um, they don't always listen to us, we try our best, we work together, or we try the best we can to work together. Senator Moore said it 110%. We are here for the people. I go in my community, Senator Moore represents my community as senator. I go door to door. When I went to get elected, I walked door to door four times in the matter of six months. Handshook, talked, did it by myself. I was lucky enough to win. I'm here now. I tell my community I am nothing without them. And I continue to talk to them. The young people learn from us, the ones that you trust, you know, I can't say that enough. We're here for the experience, for the knowledge. I've had a background in politics all my life. I, I'm a transplant. I came here 20 years ago. I didn't like what I saw. It's something if you don't say, nothing is going to change. I love the fact that you guys are coming to City Hall. You're speaking up. Come to committee meetings. You may not be able to speak, but there are times we, we do allow to speak it, if you don't come to committee meetings, you don't know the battles we have about issues that are brought in front of us. And there are many. Just because you don't see it at council does not mean that there's not an open door. Committees are open, they're not closed. The only time any committees are closed if it's executive session. And that's usually for lawsuits 
with you know individual names. That's the only time those doors are closed. Budget season starts now. We just got a list. Saturday morning is our first meeting. Go to the public hearings that we have for budget. Come and speak. Be prepared. Be knowledgeable. Because if you don't come there a little bit knowledgeable, we don't know how to answer you as well. That's how I have to learn. I do research. I don't get all the information from the, from the city. So please, if anybody has questions or concerns, you can call me. You can email me. I would be happy to help. Thank you, Councilwoman Heron. Oh, any other questions or comments? My name is Callie Heilman, and I'm the president of uh, Bridgeport Generation Now. The question that I have is, there are a lot of young people who want to get involved, who do really want to run for office, who are inspired and they have issues that drive them. But the process here that Senator Moore just described is really scary and intimidating. So when she's talking about the money that is needed to be raised, an issue that keeps coming up here is we have this like absentee ballot machine that happens in Bridgeport where in order to get elected, you, you have to know people who know people who can turn out people to then vote via absentee ballot, and then all those ballots get collected, and, um, and it goes all the way, uh, it's, it's local, but it goes all the way up to the governor's office in terms of um, Bridgeport turning out Democratic votes um, to get Democratic candidates elected. So um, the millennial generation, if you want to call it that, or just young people in general, um, tend to be unaffiliated. They don't want to be part of a party system. And Bridgeport is a party town. So how can people get involved with all of that here? Can I say something to this? Because, uh, so I'm not an endorsed candidate for the Democratic Party, although I am a Dem. Uh, even though I went to Hartford and served what I thought was a really fabulous two years as a new legislator, when I came back, I was challenged by the Democratic Party in the primary, by people who knew I did a good job, could not give me a reason why they're not supporting me. You just couldn't control me. You couldn't get me to do the things you wanted me to do, so you needed to get rid of me. But in this election, the people spoke out because they took the, what they thought was the strongest person who was the head of the town, the, the city council, and he lost by a thousand votes. He lost by a thousand votes. That should be enough for you to say, you don't need to be connected to the party, but you need to be united on a candidate. But the other important part is, you can't be a U. You have to be either a D or an R or Working Families Party, because the U's, unaffiliated voters, don't get to vote in a primary. So you don't even get to pick who's the person that's going to be challenged. So that's an important issue. And we have a lot of views in Bridgeport, unaffiliated voters, that can swing a vote. The other piece is I'd like to see some reform when it comes to absentee ballots, because that is the biggest scam here in Bridgeport. I mean, if you know a couple of people who, who in a building, they have sewed up all the people. The older people or the disabled people in the building are frightened or feel that they're going to be put out of their apartments, something's going to happen to them if they don't sign that ballot. I'd like to see, have registered people to go into some of the senior housings that one person from the state is coming in doing the absentee ballots for all those people instead of all these people going into the buildings. And you know who gets to go in the buildings? The people 
from the mayor's office, whatever the mayor is, all the mayors, they have access to all those public buildings that are city of Bridgeport, and they're the ones in there. So how do you ever have a fair election when, before you know it, they're bringing in thousands of ballots, thousands of ballots that they did on absentee? And many of those people would have gone to the polls, but they tell them, and I've heard it firsthand, well, you don't have to go, you could do it. Oh, don't worry if you're not gonna be here. Just, you can just do this. And there are people who are so professional that if it was a job, they'd be a millionaire. So uh, that's part of the problem. But also to be registered with a party is really very important. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the thing about parties, I, mean, I can relate to that. I, I, don't, I don't agree with really any party. And I'm kind of a different sort of person. I don't fit in here, there, or anywhere, but I'm a, I'm a, I registered in a party. And you have to think strategically. You can be whoever you want to be. You know, you know who you are inside as a person. The easiest place to control who your politicians are are in the primaries. And if you can't vote in the primaries, you can't make that decision. And so this is what I'm saying, is that whether you're Democrat or Republican or unaffiliated, I mean, we all know that we get to vote for whoever we want to vote for once we enter that booth, right? So the party doesn't really mean all that much, except it means something critical. I mean, split yourselves up. You know, odd, you're going to be Republican. Even you're going to be Democrat. Wouldn't it be great to control the candidates on both sides so that whoever gets elected, you've got a really, really awesome candidate? You can do that if you register in a party. The easiest place to choke out the supply is at the top where it's a trickle. But by not registering in a party, these other people who you guys don't even like so much, they're telling, they're determining what your choices are. I mean, unaffiliated is kind of a philosophy, but it, it, it doesn't work when it comes to party politics. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel again. We're live at the Beehive in Bridgeport. We heard from uh, one of the founders, Marcella Kovac, a little earlier. And we wanted to talk more about the business climate. We know there are people in Bridgeport that are passionate, that are investing in the city. There are people outside of Bridgeport who are investing in the city. I want to welcome to the panel Robert Schulten. He's a distiller at Asylum Distillery. So tell us about, you're a Southport resident, you and your your wife um, and other partner opened up the distillery right in the industrial section of town. Why Bridgeport? Why Bridgeport? Uh, we live nearby, so the commute is a reverse commute, which is always appreciated. But more importantly, um, we searched the state uh, for good uh, industrial locations. Bridgeport was the best because it was affordable and it had all the utilities that we needed. We use a lot of water, electricity, gas, and that was all here and readily available. Uh, perhaps an, another important point was the zoning. Uh, Bridgeport, as you said, is a big city. Written into the zoning was uh, distilling. And uh, I don't think it had been done here for the last 97 years, uh, <laughs> but it was still in the zoning. And so we took advantage of that, and we were able to get through a lot of the administrative uh, parts quickly. And uh, distilling is one of the more regulatory intensive things on the planet right now. Um, so going through the federal and state uh, 
hurdles were tough, so we wanted to minimize the local hurdles, and Bridgeport was ideal for that. It's been about a year since you've been open? We've been open to the public for a year. We've been uh, together as a business situated in Bridgeport for three years. The first two of those years were getting through the state and federal hurdles and building the equipment and building our brand. Why distillery, though? We hear so often about uh, there's so many breweries opening up around the state. Uh, you obviously said there's an, an interesting history here in, in Bridgeport, but you're actually distilling gin, whiskey, and vodka. Absolutely. Um, we, <laughs> we, we take Connecticut-grown corn, uh, non-GMO corn. It comes out of Summers, uh, Connecticut, which is north of Hartford. Uh, tucked up against the Massachusetts border. We bring it down into Bridgeport where we mash it, which is cook it, uh, ferment it, and then distill it into the products that you said, uh, vodka, gin, and whiskey. Has the city been supportive? Uh, yeah. As, as we're, we're a small business, um, there's, there were always difficulties just due to the, due to the uniqueness of what we do. Um, there weren't a dozen other distilleries. Uh, there's, there's probably five, there, there's many breweries, so people have had experience with that, but distilling is something a little bit different. Uh, so it took a, a little more time perhaps, but everyone was very receptive. So we've had a, uh, it went as smoothly as could be expected. We are out of time, but I think we have a new insight on the city of Bridgeport. And again, I want to thank Marcella Kovac and her team at Beehive Bridgeport. Also, Robert Schulter from Asylum Distillery. State Senator Marilyn Moore, thank you for your time thank today. You. Also, Maisha Tisdale, thank you. And Thanks. before we close, we were joking because we're based in Hartford. When I moved here 10 years ago, the slogan of Hartford was New England's rising star. And since that time, they've got a better one now. Hartford has it. But we've got this room of passionate people. And I want to ask our panelists, if you could think of a slogan for the city of Bridgeport, the city that you love, what would it be? I'll start with you, Maisa. Oh, my gosh. Me first, huh? <laughs> wow. Uh, Bridgeport, got to have it. <laughs> Senator Moore? Bridgeport, the place you want to be. Bridgeport to me is a, is a city of innovators and makers, but I have one that is kind of a statewide slogan that I'm gonna um, introduce, but I think it applies to Bridgeport too, and it's a small state, big heart, and Bridgeport has heart. Robert? Uh, I like the idea of Bridgeport distills the spirit <laughs> of Connecticut. <laughs> Our show is produced by Lydia Brown, Jeff Tyson, special thanks to WMPR executive producer, Katie Talarski, and digital reporter at WMPR, Ryan Karen King. Now for the full Where We Live conversation at Beehive Bridgeport, visit our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and once again, here's Bridgeport resident and musician, John Torrance. Move on. Nobody gets a thing from keeping someone else down. Move on, move on. Nobody's ever right by making someone else wrong. Move on.